you are you are invested in these drug discovery projects and you do get excited about them. I'm happy to welcome Adam Field to the first episode of my podcast in 2021. Adam is a senior scientist at Signature Discovery, a UK-based contract research organization where he is responsible for many drug discovery projects, utilizing biophysical techniques for assay development. We first got acquainted as graduate students in San Diego, and on this episode we dive into his current role at Signature, his leap of faith to quit his PhD work, sustainability efforts from scientists, and some British sitcoms. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today on uh, what's been a way overdue of a podcast episode. Um, the last one I have done was uh, back in June of uh, last last year. And uh, boy, oh boy, a lot of things have changed since then. But uh, not only things have changed since just 2020, it's actually it's been almost three years that uh, that we've had a chance to actually share a, a pint of Newcastle Ale uh since uh, since our time in san diego obviously we both moved on from the from that city and uh, i think in the in the last three years have your movie preferences or tv preferences evolved and like that's kind of the first icebreaker question i like to ask and this is like a segment which i call covid covidio recommendation oh nice well <laughs> you'll be happy to hear that I, I've, there's no shortage of tv i've been watching it's um you know, it's it's one of the few activities that you can get away with during COVID times. Um, so I've been catching up on quite a bit of film and TV. I would say my, my tastes have probably stayed similar. Um, I'm not overly adventurous when it comes to film and TV. So sorry, sorry to disappoint. Um, I can relate. I mean, it's not it was one thing not adventurous, and the other thing is repeat viewings of the same thing, which is what I'm guilty of. Where do you fall in that category? I I, I very much do the repeat viewings. You know, I, I catch up on old old sitcoms and um, things like that. Keeps the you know keeps keeps the the mind happy and and comfortable. <laughs> so, uh, old sitcom is that a Friends or some other one, for example? Oh. I, I'm I'm talking more like British sitcoms, IT crowds, the in-betweeners, things like that. They um I don't know, they they, they have a nice nostalgic feeling. Um and those jokes don't get old, at least not for me. <laughs> so do you know what would be like the defining difference between a British sitcom versus American sitcom? Oh, I, I'm not entirely sure. Um other than like the length of seasons, <laughs> okay. which is, you know, um, the, the, I, f I think the British sitcoms, they tend to be like, you get five to 10 episodes that are just like back to back, mm -hmm. you know, nonstop hilarity. Whereas the American sitcoms, they go on for a lot longer. So you get a bit more character development, but the laughs maybe aren't as quick and fast. Um, though, you know, there's so many coming out of both countries that it's kind of hard to, um, make a distinction between either one. So would you say an office is a sitcom or not? Not really, because I'm not sure how you describe that. Like the the office, the, the office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I so I recently watched the American version, like from start to finish, and it, it was great. I, f I found it really, really funny. Um, I will admit to attempting to watch the British version and being unable to really. Yeah, I just found it really, really awkward <laughs> and 
it kind of just made me cringe up internally and that is so fascinating. I I yeah. found both versions to be cringeworthy, frankly. Hence, I never attempted to to go past more than a couple episodes in each. <laughs> I, I found the American version like loosened up a bit, and it got a bit more slapstick, a bit easier to digest. Whereas the the UK version was just slightly punishing to watch. <laughs> so so we can blame it on Ricky Gervais, basically. Yeah, let's blame it on Ricky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think you can take it. He has the thick skin. Yeah. So as far as the differences between uh, America and U.S., actually, one of the questions I was uh, curious to ask you, since you've kind of dipped your toes in either world, uh, what uh, do you think is the the similarities between, um, let's say, uh, well, research, since since obviously you're, you're a research scientist now, between uh, doing research in America versus in the U.K.? Where do you see yourself more flourishing, if you will, and why? So, uh, yeah, it's a difficult question in a way. Um, the, I, I suppose the environments differ quite markedly in that I was, strictly speaking, in an academic environment during my time in the US, um, whereas I'm in much more of a, you know, biotech, pharma kind of environment now. Um, and... I don't want to sound cliche, but there there is the the natural differences between the two. Where in an academic setting, you know, you you get fixated on a focal point of academic interest, and you you hash that kind of research out um, to the bitter end, so to speak. And that happens in you know, obviously you get some support from your lab, but otherwise it's quite an independent, quite an isolated piece of work. Um, whereas we're in a biotech pharma industrial what have you kind of setting um your your kind of um what's the word your environment for research is much wider especially coming from a a, a contract research organization like like myself um you can be you know dipping your toe in all kinds of different um areas of of, of biotech and drug discovery um so the focus is a lot wider and I would say there's there's more of an integrated approach to the to the to the projects and to the research in that um, because it's a a drug discovery setting um, there's a lot more stakeholders in the success um, and the progress of the project so mm-hmm. um, it, it, the teams feel bigger and they feel a bit more collaborative than perhaps what you would have got in an academic environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't, I mean, they're not necessarily differences between research in the US and the UK. Um, I would say one of the big differences in the US I found um, with SBP when we were working together, um, one thing that stuck out to me was the integration between biotech and what for us was an academic setting. So you had a real overlap between what was going on on the Torrey Pines Mesa with a uh, lot of small startups and larger pharmaceutical companies. Um, and a lot of that kind of bled into what we were doing at the SPP, mm-hmm. um, which I haven't experienced as much in the UK. Um, I've conducted academic research at CRUK Beeson Institute in the UK and some other institutions as well. And there's there's hints of that. Um, so spin outs and collaborations with industry. But I don't know, with with San Diego, it felt 
like that was taken to new extremes and there was a real cross-pollination between the biotech sector and academia, which I think is, there's probably places in the UK that are similar, but mm -hmm. I haven't quite had the the same experience here that I did in the US. With so is, it, is this a, an, a result of maybe, let's say, I don't want to say like a class separation, but sort of a class separation in the UK when it comes to academic research versus kind of new breed of entrepreneurially minded people that are eager to try their hand in actually, you know, doing business? It's, um, it's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure whether, a, I'm not sure whether a class divide is maybe the white, the right way to put it though, you know, running with that idea, I do think that the, the wall between academia and industry can be a little more pronounced, um, in the UK than perhaps at least from what I saw in like California in the US. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that's changing. Um, there's a lot of, you know, exciting initiatives coming up in, in my hometown in Newcastle and stuff like that, um, where you're seeing more um, available funding for academics who maybe want to transition to creating spin-out companies or they want to engage more with industry. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps that's what has been lacking in the past. Maybe it's that the money doesn't flow quite as freely between academia and industry as it does within those two groups. So they don't kind of, they don't meet in the middle, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I think that could, that could be poised to change. Yeah. So I, just, just following in that, in that vein, I know that there is a different, there's specific types of grants in the U S which sort of help there's that kind of startup grants. So I don't think in that sense, there is not such the same thing equivalent to that in the UK then, or are you not sure? I'm, I'm sure there are, mm -hmm. um, though exactly, um, exactly how they're administered. I'm not entirely sure or, mm -hmm. or kind of, you know, how, how openly available they are. Mm -hmm. I think if you're an academic, I think, kind of get, just getting academic grants is probably a bit easier than trying to branch off into an industry um, or, or a spin-off um, venture. Mm -hmm. um, though I have to say, I've got no personal experience with that. That's just kind of um, from my peripheral um, speaking to people who've toyed with the idea. Um, it doesn't sound like it's, you know, a simple thing to do. Um, yeah. So um, I was I was uh, I had a conversation with Peter to read from SVP last last year, who also had some, has some who spent some time in the UK. And one of the things that we discussed with him on, 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 on the podcast was the sort of the collegial spirit that is fundamentally, I would say, different in the UK versus the US which something that we discussed with you right before um, we had a, uh, we, we, we're recording this, where you can have like a share a pint with, with your mates, if you will. There's not the same thing, I think, in the US, which that's, for example, one of the things I really missed in my PhD time, which is being able to, on a Friday night, really experience going to a pub and bounce off some ideas. Mm, uh, you know, I, 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 I'll admit, I, I missed it too when I was in the US. Um, it didn't seem to be, I think, I think the culture in the US was kind of like, you know, you, you live and breathe the science, but you do that in the lab. <laughs> At least mm -hmm. that was the gist I got. 
Um, whereas I think in, in the UK, it's, you know, y- you do your stint in the laboratory, um, at the university, what have you. Um, but then, as you say, you kind of, you spill out into the pub, you have a couple of pints, you know, you lubricate the mind, so to speak. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, a lot of, a lot of discussion happens in those kind of environments in the UK. Um, a lot of networking and a lot of, um, I don't know, I, I have a feeling like a lot of the more avant-garde ideas that sometimes end up sticking get dreamed up in in pubs. I mean, yeah. I, one of the, I mean, I don't want to digress too far, but one of the best talks I've been to was um, Lord Robert Winston, um, who's a famous UK scientist, and he was talking about how um, he, he ended up producing one of the very first... Um, magnetic resonance images um ever because he was studying like um ovulation in rabbits i believe and um he didn't know how to measure what stage they were in their 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 cycle effectively and he was chatting to some guys at a pub in cambridge or oxford you know the the typical setting yeah and and there was a essentially two physicists who he was talking to and they were like well you'll never guess what we have back at the lab so they kind of you know went back to the lab half cut and, and put a rabbit in what was one of the world's first MRI machines. Wow. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, it's almost a romanticized um, thing, but it, it does really happen. Yeah. <laughs> I feel on, on that note, it really feels to me that in the U S maybe I'm a little bit uh, a bitter in some ways about spending so much time in a laboratory you spend so much time, you know, working on, you know, on your graduate research project or whatever, and you just are so mentally exhausted that you're just checking out and you don't really have enough time to socialize. And that, you know, talking about science in a bar setting uh, is not really a thing that you would necessarily seek out. But that's not how I felt when I was in the UK, for example. It was, it was there was more of a defined structure to doing research. Maybe because I wasn't doing graduate school there. I was just doing an internship. But to me, there was like you work and then you socialize and you can kind of implement that, you know, b- bouncing off of ideas. And I heard not just, you know, this is a great story that you just mentioned, but there were some other ones that I, I heard perhaps, I think, uh, uh, both. Uh, um, what's his name? Now I'm blanking out. The the guys that that discovered the DNA were uh, Francis Crick oh, and James Watson, right? They they yeah. were also in a pub where I think they shared uh, in Cambridge their their results for the first time, or so the legend says. So yeah, I completely see that this would be how how it would go in in that very romantic, romanticized kind of way. So. In that sense, what do you think uh, will happen to these kinds of encounters going forward? I mean, I'm sure you miss it, you yeah. know, just as much as I do, if not more. How it's, do you think that's going to affect the research <laughs> or, you know, just how people interact with one another? It's, it, it is hard, you know, um, that social aspect is, is, is often kind of sidelined or it's not mentioned but it's it's a really it's an important part of the the scientific process is being able to discuss things in an informal environment um you know perhaps without the the your supervisor watching and criticizing what you're saying and or you know um or just letting ideas flow freely so it's hard to say i think i've been 
I've been pleasantly surprised with how the scientific community on the academic side and the drug discovery side of things has adapted, for instance, conferencing uh, to be able to continue in a new form, um, you know, much like what we're doing now um, online in, in, in spite of COVID. So at least some of those discussions can go on. But I, I have to say, I've still found a lack of those kind of relaxed networking opportunities. You know, you're not wandering around with a coffee, rubbing shoulders with your colleagues and different departments or different companies or different research groups. Um, so who knows, maybe there's a, maybe there's a technological solution to it all and we can do I, it. All. I hope so. You yeah, know, some kind of, yeah. some kind of ale on tap through Microsoft teams. Hey, I mean, you know, I, my, my partner's a postdoc and they were, you know, sent nibbles and, and wine in the post. So people are trying, you know, to get these things, um, to get around the difficulties we're currently facing. Um, but I don't think there's going to be a, a replacement for seeing people in person and hopefully given the progress on the vaccines and things like that, we can get to some sense of normality. So when was the last time you were at a pub, like having a pint? Uh, don't make me, don't make me. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Back. <laughs> um, so, so it hasn't been since, since before, it's, the, it's since been, the before times. It's been a, it's been a while. So we, we had a, a slight lull in the restrictions. So we're in our second lockdown. We had, we had our first at the outbreak at the outset of, of COVID. Um, then we had maybe, I think it was maybe a period of, three months where we entered a tiered system where we were able to, you know, go back to some sense of normality for a short space of time before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And me and some colleagues, we were able to get out to a pub there because we have, we had a reasonably regular meetup on a Friday, um, which, you know, it, good to unwind and talk about what's going on in different projects and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do miss that. Um, but going back to your initial question, it's been um, it's been a while <laughs> since since well before Christmas, I'd say. Oh yeah. man, yeah. So hopefully uh, your local pub is uh, still not uh, completely closed its doors. I I heard uh, that quite a few pubs across the UK have been uh, basically just just closed forever, and that's like to me, like I don't know, it hurts me. Even though I have only very limited exposure to that, it still kind of feels like this like end of an era in 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 some respects. Yeah, I think the hope is that you know things will bounce back in some respect mm -hmm. um, once 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 we get a handle on the situation. If we get a handle on the situation, um, yeah, I think um, pubs it, they're not the only ones, you know any kind of business that relies on people getting out and socializing, whether it's live music or restaurants that they're, they're all, they're all struggling. So it's some, um, mm -hmm. some all remains to be seen, unfortunately. So, which, which I guess leads me into the, your day-to-day -day activities. Now that you can't really go and socialize in a pub, you spend quite a lot of time working. I know, you are a very busy person and uh, using this opportunity, I'll just want to say thank you for taking the time to speak with me. My so pleasure. so uh, being in a CRO, being a senior scientist at the CRO, I'm sure you have no shortage of uh, people 
wanting to, you know, ask you something and there's like hard deadlines and things like that. But what is like maybe one thing that you get a kick out of working in this kind of, you know, very fast paced environment and that you would not really find in any other, I guess, position? Yeah, um, good question. I mean, as you know, I, I, I'm I'm someone who gets bored easily. So the, the the fast pace, you know, and and the variety of tasks that you might have to do on a, a day to day basis, um, I, that keeps me going. Um, you know, if I, I know that if one task becomes mundane, there's probably five more that I got to get my teeth into that require a level of you know, uh, critical assessment. Asset, developing assays, um, asking scientific questions. So there's no shortage of that. Um, in terms of things that I get a kick out of, um, there's there's freedom to you know explore some of my personal interests um, in terms of areas of drug discovery or or research that you know I've I've built up an interest in over the years, and um, I like the freedom to. Um, apply those interests and, you know, give something to the department. So um, things like I was involved with um, developing and, and, and screening drug combinations um, back at my time at AstraZeneca and, um, you know, being able to apply that to my work currently at, 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 the, at um, Signature Discovery, where I'm currently based, um, has been great. And, uh, I've got a lot of those kind of things in in a back pocket, you know, that you you kind of build up over the course of your career, um, that you may not necessarily get to 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 get your teeth into if um, if you have a, a you know a, a more a more focused, should you say, um, set of set of things to do. But um, you know, as long as as long as we're delivering on um, client projects and making sure they're drug discovery programs are moving forward. Um, there's always the opportunity to kind of incorporate new ideas, um, bolster the capabilities of the department and things like that. And, you know, seeing that progress, um, yeah, I, I get a kick out of that. It's um, fun. So your, uh, I think your work involves working with, I, I would say, basically like a cutting edge technology as far as laboratory automation, I would, I would expect and things like that. This is something that I I'm personally very interested in in uh, have, having you maybe describe a little bit. Like, what's some of the things that you're seeing at the at the very end of this CRO world world that you that you're working in? Where do you see this kind of um, uh, I guess um, I guess technology leading to as far as how fast you can deliver on some of those projects and uh, you know the how 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 far how far are we in terms of this you know just pace from the let's say beginning of the last last year and all the way now like how far how far have we come in the in the last year basically so i mean pace is like the name of the game in in drug discovery you know i, I mean your work has to be rigorous it has to be considered but time is always of the essence you know, um, it, it's about getting these treatments to clinic as, as, as fast as possible. Not uh, often you're, you're racing against multiple clocks, whether they be competitors or, or other things. So technology is a large part of that. Um, I mean, we, we've invested in a lot of different assay platforms that kind of 
we, they're intended to make us more agile in the, the drug discovery process. So things that we do is we'll often run, you know, functional assays and biophysical assays in parallel. So we'll be running multiple levels of drug discovery, um, bringing on expertise from cell biologists, biophysicists, biochemists, tackling the problem from multiple angles, um, because often you find if you can leverage that kind of resource at the start, um, pick the ideas that work best, then you'll get the quickest results in your drug discovery program. Um, another thing that we emphasize the importance of is interdisciplinary work. So we work very closely with our chemistry department and our DMPK department um, at, at early stages to make sure that, you know, the, the chemicals we're testing, that they're not going to be hampered by poor PK down the line or, you know, the chemists aren't going to come along and say, we can't do anything with this um, because it's a chemical dead end. So we're constantly talking to those guys so that we're not wasting time, um, you know, when it when it comes to getting some kind of lead molecule in the, in, in the pipeline later on. Uh, we don't want to hinder ourselves down the line. Um, and that, that, again, involves a lot of different technology platforms. Um, one, one of the most powerful that we've um, seen, you know, a, a lot of recently is, is fragment-based drug discovery, where we, you know, we're taking really small 200 molecular weight chemical moieties, testing them in biophysical platforms. We get like um, computational chemistry in, in a big way. So we're using virtual screening, um, computer modeling, you know, looking at crystal structures of proteins, fitting things together, um, coupling those kind of new um, techniques with more traditional um, screening lead-like compounds can can really help. Um, so I would, you know, in, in a nutshell, it's if you if you hit the if you're hitting the question from multiple angles and multiple techniques and multiple technologies, that naturally speeds up the drug discovery process. And it's something we put high value on when we're uh, persecuting a, a, a drug discovery program. It seems that uh, there were so many different technologies. And as you say, hitting uh, one, uh, let's say, one project from so many different angles, the uh, the, let's say, activation energy using biophysical terms to understand uh, how a certain type of pro molecular process works and how to influence that seems to be just increasingly more difficult as years go by because we learn more, we have new different techniques to probe the same thing from you know all those different angles. Uh, I, I, I do think is this the right sort of path to go? Because I think at some point we're going to hit the, the sort of, not the wall, but there's just going to be so much of different ways you can look at the same thing. When is the time to simplify things? I mean, that's a big, big and loaded question, but yeah, it's um, but it's a good question. It's it's a question that's kind of on the mind of anyone who's involved in drug discovery. Is the, the scary question is have we hit all the low hanging fruit already? You know, <laughs> it's yeah. it's 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 as you say the 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 cost in time. And, and money for developing new drugs only increases. And there's got to be some component of 
you know, maybe the easy targets we've we've already got good candidates and good tool molecules mm-hmm. against them. So it's um it's an interesting question because you like should we simplify it? But I, I wonder if the the question is should we should we be viewing things more holistically, to be honest. Um and rather than you know, throw, as you say, throwing resource in at the the kind of trying to just find hits, um, considering biological systems for what they are, which is complex multi-component systems um, that are probably not going to respond to a single small molecule drug. Um, and things have been moving that way for, for, you know, the best part of a decade, really. There's, there's much more recognition that if we're going to use targeted therapies and realize personalized medicine, you know, tailoring people's drugs to the type of tumor they have, for for instance, um, that's probably not going to be one drug. It's probably going to be a cocktail, a, a combination of drugs. Um, going back to what I said about some of my experience in the past, um, and even then, it may not just be small molecules. Um, we've seen growing importance of um, you know, a big thing right now is vaccines, um, which we're seeing more techniques coming in. So um, employing the immune system with CAR-Ts, um, immunomodulating, um, biologics, um, again, a hugely expanding um, area of drug discovery, especially in the oncology space, um, but also in space of inflammatory diseases. Um I think what what drug discovery will be is it's it's going to be building a toolkit of 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 these things and small molecules are only a small part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, then I think it's going to be a case of scientists in collaboration with clinicians coming up with how you can really leverage all those different components against the disease in some kind of combination. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it be small molecules, protax, you know, medicalized antibodies. Um, I think at the end of the day, all these different technologies are going to, they're, they're all going to be employed against the disease in parallel at some point. Okay. I mean, so I think it's a bit of a wishful thinking to have uh to have all of this knowledge and all of these technologies to be at the back end of, um, I guess, uh, of, of uh, this kind of clinician or scientist of the future, where you could just really understand something quite simply and then all of that body of knowledge just working in some kind of black box approach and just spitting you, okay, this is the combination of things that you need to add. It's, 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 yeah. It's wishful thinking, but I think you've got to have an element of that. To be honest, you know, you've got you've got to imagine a future where we have some process that doesn't exist currently for matching a, a patient or a patient group to what the quote unquote ideal treatment regimen would be. Um, and I think part of drug discovery, you know, is um, making sure that once that capability is realized that the the treatments are available for patients use mm-hmm. so that's actually um this makes me wonder the technologies that you use and the data that basically all of them all of those instruments really provide you do you really have a way to 
let's say, store it in a way where you don't have to repeat the same thing as time goes on, where you have some kind of inherent database of understanding of, let's say, how your different moieties work in for a certain different for a certain protein target, for example, or similar target, like how much of the, let's say, stuff you need to repeat, uh, or you can actually, you know, really build up on that, because that's ultimately, I guess, the the bottleneck if you can you keep up with uh, building out those technologies that can store and so you don't have to repeat the same things over and over again. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's no mean feat putting all that knowledge in one place, but we've got software platforms which at least go part way to, to, to doing that. So um, part, part, of, um, part of what I like about working in this kind of industry is um, it's, no, no knowledge gets left behind. You know, it's really rigorous. Everything's recorded meticulously um, scrutinized and it's logged because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's important to the client. It's important to the, the, the just general knowledge of the drug discovery department. Mm-hmm. Um, so you never know when a piece of knowledge will be, you know, important down the line. Um, and so in, in short, yes, we, 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 we track everything and we try to be mindful of things we've learned in the past. Um, and we can always go back and pull out old information and, and apply new ideas to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure there's ways to, you know, improve upon that. It's, um, it's a, the, often the problem these days isn't producing and logging the data it's you know it's it's processing the data and getting yeah. useful information from it right yeah I, I bet i think one of the things i've i've discovered is there is a whole other industry that supplies uh, all those different software solutions for you know this data processing so you don't really have this big silos of of, of data that is just you have really great quality data. It's all logged in perfectly, but it's only as good as how quickly you can retrieve it and put it to good use. So, um, in in your, I think so. As as you say, you're working in CRO, and you previously had some industry experience as well. What do you think really separates CROs from working in in a pharmaceutical company? Is there a really a big distinction in terms of like day to day activities? Because, I mean, there's quite a bit of overlap as far as, you know, you have R&D departments, you have this drug discovery departments. But what is the one thing that maybe separates what you were, do in a signature versus if you had to do the same kind of stuff in some other, uh, in some other uh, company? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, face value, there's a lot of similarities. As you say, you're, you're, you're dealing with drug discovery pipelines and um, a lot of the the, the data production, data logging, and things like that. The, the, the culture of the way we conduct research is very similar to what you would see at Big Pharma. Um, one, of the, one of the key distinctions with a CRO is the, the, cli- the client-facing nature of it. Um, so we work in smaller teams. Um, we you know, have a client who's a stakeholder for this work, um, and where essentially they're, um, you know, that they're man on the ground, for better, for better want of a phrase, persecuting their drug discovery um, project on their behalf. 
And that that creates a, a different environment to what you would have in a pharmaceutical company where um, you may have a whole department working on a, on a single drug discovery project. Um, you're more likely to be in a smaller team. And it's, it's often the case, um, you know, you, you kind of integrate the client into that team in a way. And you, you, you know, that, that project, that drug discovery project kind of becomes personal to you. Um, because, you know, you, that's, that's like your baby. That's what you're, you're doing for the, um, on behalf of the client. Um, so it, it feels a little bit more personal. Um, you know, you're not doing it on behalf of, um, uh, a big farmer organization. You're doing it. Um, you almost treat it as though it's your personal project. Um, and that, you know, ultimately translates into doing a good job for the client because you have a vested interest in making sure that it all goes smoothly and it's, you know, um, you ultimately get them that, that lead candidate at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that client facing, um, part of the role is, is quite unique to a CRO. Um, that it's something you don't really find in a larger pharmaceutical setting. Do you still feel the sense of like, I'm trying to help, let's say patients at large and, uh, how, how is that sort of relationship shaped as far as like in the company culture, you you mentioned the client, the client facing aspect of it, but how does maybe the eventual outcome of something of some work that you do being eventually being part of the the patient medication, like, does that also permit permeate the, the work that you do? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's why we do what we do. It's, you know, it's, it's the guiding principle at the end of the day. And that's built into signature discoveries. Um, you know, our, our, our value statement, um, that ultimately, you know, we're persecuting these drug discovery projects on behalf of the clients in the, in the hope and expectation that they're going on to, to make an impact mm-hmm. in a clinical setting. And, you know, we've been lucky enough to see that happen on a, on a number of occasions. Um, we, we've had a number of compounds that we've, we've helped persecute go on a phase one, two, three clinical trials. And, um, you know, we've, we've had clients give talks on um, successful translations from preclinical to clinical. And um, it's always heartening to see, you know, that's what, what drives our efforts at the end of the day. So would you say in a, in a few years time, when one of the compounds that you helped uh, discover or, you know, finalize becoming a, you know, a full, fully fledged drug, was that something that you, you personally hope to, to accomplish in some way, or is this just like, okay, that's nice. I have, I, you, I'm doing it not just for that, but for other reasons too. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, there's, there's multiple reasons, but it's never it's never just oh that's nice is it it's it's a big deal if you know if i i've always got it in the back of my mind you know when i'm seeing i'm working say i'm working a drug discovery project i'm running a functional assay and i can see the compound becoming more and more potent you know and and getting better you know phys chem properties and better pk and mm-hmm. oh it, oh it works in cells Maybe it'll work in, you know, in vivo models. Mm-hmm. The quest, the question constantly in your mind is like, 
is it going to work in a person? And you you, you get a palpable sense of excitement I when see. you see that drug come from, you know, just like, you know, some some poor, not very potent scribble in a chemist's notebook to, you know, being this potentially potential clinical candidate, you know, um, and along for the day where I can get all, all the way up to that end point. <laughs> wow. You, yeah. you 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 really feel it you you are you are invested in these drug discovery projects and you do get excited about them that's that's amazing um so now that you're in your cro role i want to take us one sort of step back obviously before in a in a in a previous life this is where we met we met in san diego where both you and i uh, uh, were uh, graduate students so my question to you is and uh, this is what I would like to maybe call like a punk rock moment where, so you basically took a leap of faith in some, in some regards yeah. <laughs> where you, you chose to uh, essentially uh, not, per, not pursue finishing the PhD and, uh, and uh, essentially return to UK. And uh, basically this, you're now, you know, a senior scientist in, at the CRO. Looking back, this has been almost three years now. Um, I assume you're pretty happy with that decision. I can't see why you wouldn't be. But uh, what 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 is your let's say sense of um, like accomplishment? How do how do you feel really? Go looking back at like that decision at the time. Did you see yourself being where you are now? And how was that decision really affect your life over these last few years? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it was obviously it's a big decision, but, you know, you you describe it as a leap of faith. And it's like, uh, I'm, I've got a habit of doing that, to be honest. <laughs> um, I think it was a case of, I mean, moving to San Diego, that, that was kind of a, a, a big leap as well. Because as, as you know, I started my, um, my graduate program in, in Glasgow at the Beetson Institute. Um, and transitioned to San Diego um, because my lab effectively packed up shop and, and, and moved to California. Um, it was it, it was a an interesting realization. I think um, perhaps spurred on by the fact I'd already had some experience in industry before. Mm -hmm. um, I started out immediately after my um, undergraduate studies working as a research tech at, with AstraZeneca. Um, but in the two years I was in that pharma role, I was kind of always like, oh, I want to try big picture, blue sky science, you know, go for, the, go for a graduate program, do a PhD um, and see where that takes me. Um, and, you know, it, it, it took me across the Atlantic and it, it took me a bunch of places, but I, I got a palpable sense of when I was in that third year in the SBT that it was taking me somewhere I didn't really want to go. You know, I got I got kind of the feeling that I'd, I'd hopped on the wrong bus. Mm -hmm. And I was like, really what I I was wanting to do was, was it more of a what I'd experienced in industry, to be honest, which is, you know, persecuting these scientific ideas at the point of them becoming tangible therapy, you know, therapies, basically. Um, that's not to say I, I, I didn't enjoy, um, you know, my, my time in academia. I did some, you know, really interesting stuff. 
um, aging biology and epigenetics, which um, I'm still I still got a really big interest in. But I felt like it was um, you know it was it was time to kind of sidestep and think about what I wanted in terms of a career um, and and you know whether that was the right place to take me there. Um, so it was, it was a bit of a leap of faith and the, it wasn't, wasn't just professional reasons, um, that I left, you know, um, I, I had personal reasons for returning to the UK, but I would say overall it was, it was a, it was a professional, um, move. Mm-hmm. Um, and did I see myself here when I, when I essentially moved back to the UK, uh, kinda, um, <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. 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 It's kind of what I was aiming for. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you now I, you know, I got back to the UK. I wrote up my data as a, as a master's thesis, um, took a bit of time out to reorient what I wanted to do. I decided, yeah, you know, I, I still want to work in a lab, um, just in a different context. So I, you know, pursued career options in a, in a, in a, in quite a wide range of things. You know, I, I had interviews with a, a few startups that were doing interesting stuff in aging space, epigenetic space. Um, I had a couple of interviews at places which were maybe a little more aligned with academic interests, but were kind of on the the translational side. So moving moving ideas from academic labs into um in a drug discovery program, so to speak. Um, I got some offers from that, others, you know, not so fortunate, but then it was a case of this opportunity came up and it kind of ticked all the boxes and, um, you know, I, I, I got an initial interview and it, it seemed right up my street and, um, you know, the, the leadership, but the company seemed, uh, seemed great, really clued in. And, um, I, I kind of got a feeling of, oh yeah, that's the culture I want to be in. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll go for that. And I think if I hadn't got the job at Signature where I am now, I'd have probably looked for something, something similar. Mm-hmm. One of the things maybe at, uh, as we conclude this um, very fascinating conversation, because I mean, working in CRO is something I, I never seriously considered just because of, I was, I guess, in some cases, hesitant to really go full steam ahead with tight deadlines and all that stuff. Um, I was, I'm curious in this year that we live in now, I mean, not, not to say, you know, this year is any really different than all the other years where, um, we have had a really huge impact on the environment over the last few years. I made a resolution for myself as a new year resolution to learn more about how, how science scientific community has an impact on uh on sustain sustainable you know future for our for our uh, planet i'm curious in your day-to-day activities is there some part of you that wants to i guess have an impact not just on patients but obviously on the way the business is conducted in a in a sustainable environment i know this is a bit of a crazy pivot but i'm curious as you know we as scientists obviously have a role to play in driving this sustainable future. But 
in the company and like maybe you personally, like, do you feel like an increasing need to address that aspect of the business as well? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you got it right. I think part of, part of being scientifically minded is that you, you're aware of the eco ecological impact we have, um, perhaps more aware than, you know, the, the average citizen, um, you know, whether that's a blessing or a curse. Uh, I know it's it's hard as a scientist. Um, you know, we use a lot of disposable plastic wear and things like that. Um, but, you know, that's necessary to produce good science. Um, and it's not to say that we can't do things to, you know, address that. Um, it, so it's funny you should ask the question. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm one of the health, safety and environment officers at Signature Discovery. So uh, the, the environment part is something we, you know, we take very seriously. Um, and we do have um, initiatives at Signature to try and make sure that we're minimizing the impact we have on mm -hmm. the environment with what we do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because that's an important thing. We've, we've got to look after the planet um, as much as we look after ourselves. Um, it, it's cyclical, really. Um, so we try our best to put as much plastic back into um, back into the recycling system as we possibly can. Um, and we're always keen to, you know, um, re reduce packaging and make sure that we're using um, reagents or techniques that produce less waste um, where it's scientifically um, prudent to do so. Mm -hmm. um, and also just in day-to-day -day, um, operations, um, you know, we got rid of plastic cups a couple of years ago. Uh, for Christmas, we all got metal, you know, drinks bottles. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, every little helps when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I, I, we're always open to um, ideas on how to minimize our impact on the environment in general. So do you think it's the lack of, um, uh, let's say, available recycling technologies, or is this is just a pure research necessity currently that sort of precludes, um, you know, organizations such as yours and, and, and many others to really make a significant leap forward in this regard? It's, it's, it's multiple things, isn't it? There's a whole, there's a whole system to consider when it comes to the kind of pollution, for want of a better word, that we produce and what we can do with it. Um, I mean, one of the questions is, you know, I mean, could we recycle contaminated waste? I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe there are processes that could could come in in the future that would allow us to safely decontaminate laboratory waste so we could use it again. Mm -hmm. um, could we use different materials for for certain aspects like the pet tips that could be reused um I, i'm not entirely sure i mean I, I know some of the things that we do um we, we'll use things in lieu of pipette tips for dispensing compounds because pet tips are a waste uh, mm -hmm. they're just disposable plastic so we'll use um metal tipped automated dispensers to get around that or um you know, something we use 90% of the time these days is we use um, contact-free acoustic dosing platforms, mm -hmm. um, which cut down on a lot of plastic waste. Um, so that's an would, interesting question. So would you say, um, 
um, just in the hypothetical world, if you had a a company that does something in the in that sort of let's say they have a technology or a way to minimize waste or mitigate the effects of it, is it something that let's say you in the company would be like, okay, we're interested in maybe exploring that as a, like a pilot option? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, we we have we have quite a a good system where the the staff at, at signature they're always kind of encouraged to suggest ways in which we can improve on our environmental impact and things like that so a lot of our current initiatives have come out of that um likewise if there are as you mentioned more like um institutional or commercial um endeavors which would allow us to reduce the waste we produce or the energy we use or things like that. Yeah, I, that's something that we would certainly consider, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the, I just I just feel like as uh, as this year rolled in, it, it just became ever more palpable because if you recall maybe early on in the COVID time, <laughs> you even feel strange even saying these things. I remember reading all these reports, oh, like, uh, whales in the Hudson or something like really crazy where, yeah. you know, things are slowing down. You see nature sort of taking back what it's lost. And it just sort of made me realize even more, uh, uh, you know, prominently just how much of an impact we we are having. And, you know, if there is a way to uh, keep that conversation evolving, even in this in this kind of instance, where you know this kind of might get exposure that you know there's companies that are interested in exploring new technologies every little bit helps and it's it's nice to see that you know even places with such strict um let's say deadlines strict uh, demand for you know all the scientific rigor as you as you mentioned there is room for improvement there is always room for innovation yeah, no, I, I completely agree that, you know, this it's a topic we should be bringing up in conversation more frequently and hopefully in, in, in conversations where it wouldn't usually crop up. Um, I, I think, in you know, in research, it's, um, as I say, it's it's a, an even more poignant conversation because we do produce a lot of waste. And we do have to be mindful of the kind of waste that we're, we're producing. Um, and equally, I'm sure there's a lot of other industries that would benefit from the same conversation um and i agree it's you know in, in a way this year started out with yeah uh the fires in australia and things like that and you it, it brings home kind of what what kind of impact people are having um and what we can do to try and mitigate that so i do think it's an important conversation yeah well, Adam, thank you so much for for having a chance to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. I I look forward to to having a pint of uh, Newcastle ale, and hopefully that is not virtual in the not too distant future. Oh, fingers are tightly crossed. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>